Welcome to the Spirited Advocate podcast, brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States, the leading voice for the distilled spirits industry. Now your host, Chris Wonger. Welcome, Spirited Podcast watchers, listeners, and so forth. Uh, We've got a great special guest today. We've got Dan Lease, the President and CEO of Hodling and Company. Now, Hodling was established in 1993. They're based in San Francisco, and they were formerly known as the Anchor uh, Distilling Company. It's just one of the coolest companies on the planet. Let me just tell you a little bit about it before I turn it over to Dan. Hodling and Company creates and curates and builds artisanal brand with unmatched character and quality that consumers champion. It is really, when you think about an eclectic, cool company, you can think about Hodling and their great brand portfolio. Dan Lease has been the CEO for maybe about a year and a half uh, or so, and he spent a lot of his career at Brown Foreman in the wines business. So, Dan, thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing more about Hodling and what's going on in your great company. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. It's great to be here. Yeah, tell us tell us a little bit top line about the history of Hodling, if you could, uh, because it is so integrated in uh, the San Francisco culture and and just a part of the part of the community of San Francisco. Could you just give us a flavor of the history of the company? Yeah, on the on the distilling side, um, it's it's it comes from the old Anchor Distilling Company that Fritz Maytag, who had bought uh, Anchor Brewery, uh, basically. Basically, out of uh, out of bankruptcy, gosh, when he got out of Stanford, it's been a long time, over 50 years ago. Um, and in the 90s, 93, he he de- started developing a spirits portfolio with Old Petrero and uh, Junipero Gin, um, and distilling in the basement of Anchor Brewery. And it, as it grew and grew, the business became more and more important. Um, they developed their own organization around Anchor Distilling. Uh, once Anchor Brewery, Fritz sold that to uh, uh, well, one of the main owners, Tony Folio, who continues to be uh, one of the main owners here of Hodling. Industry icon. Industry, Industry icon, icon, no yeah. doubt. I've known Tony myself for over 25 years and a great guy. Um, when Anchor, when they sold Anchor to Sapporo, they kept Anchor Distilling and merged it with Price Imports down in Southern Cal uh, that Tony owned as well. And uh, it became uh, Hodling. Tell us about uh, your your creative approach to artisanal distilled spirits. I'm sure, you know, there's craft distillers around the country that, uh, you know, inject that in their brand building experiences. But uh, your product portfolio really defines what I think artisanal really means. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, for yeah, Juniper. You- distill and import as well. Well, yes. In fact, I mean, Junipero Gin was the was really the first craft uh, considered the first uh, craft spirit in the U.S. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's been one that our our main, our uh, master distiller was on the on the beer side was a brewer and became the uh, master distiller and continues to be. And you have a great Japanese whiskey lineup as well, right? Uh, Nika whiskey. Right? Yeah, yeah, Nika is fantastic. It's you know it's 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 completely sought sought after all over the uh, the world. 
and it's one of our mainstays. It's one of the most important brands in our portfolio. And uh, it was the, you know, the, the first Japanese whiskey. Uh, they, they started the trend. And Dan, I know a couple of weeks ago, uh, 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 I guess the Japanese Whiskey Association, forgive me if I've got that wrong, but y- y'all have come up with new standards for Japanese whiskey. Japanese whiskey has really come to the forefront uh, for consumers all around the world. Yeah, and before, uh, Chris, there was really no standards. Uh, Japanese whiskey uh, could be made of of all or part Japanese whiskey. It could have others from around the world in it, uh, certainly scotch. Uh, But they decided as a group to to, to put off standards that the world, I think the world wants that, right? I mean, I think you've got it with bourbon, you've got it with uh, the various scotches and whatnot. And so... It, it was just following sort of a, a worldwide trend, and so yeah, that was instilled. Uh, I think it's. I think the new uh, uh, the new laws are in place uh, April one. And Dan, you really a bulk of your career was in the wine business with Behringer Wines, if I had that right, with Brown Foreman and so forth. What uh, what's different from the wine business versus uh, the the spirits business, particularly artisanal uh, spirits portfolio? Yeah, there's a couple of things. You know, actually, Chris, I got started uh, a long time ago. I started actually as a Coors Campus rep in college. Uh, I was in a state in the Midwest that uh, the drinking age was 18 then. Uh, I fell in love with the industry. I was working for them while in college. And when I got out, I went to Stroh's. So I spent about six years in beer. And then I went to Brown Foreman. And my entire time at Brown Foreman was uh, in wines. I started in marketing. I ran the Corbell brand. I eventually ran all the marketing, was moved to California to run the U.S. wine business. And um, it, it was just a great run. You're right. I went to Behringer uh, when uh, when Brown Foreman wanted me to move back to Louisville. I loved Louisville, but I had a family established here in California. So that uh, it made more sense to stay in wine, stay in California. Uh, and so I had a great run there. Foster's had bought us and I spent uh, five years uh uh, running what people at the time was Behringer Blast Wine Estates, the precursor to Treasury. Um, the difference, there, there's a lot of differences. I think the the spirits business, while the artisanal side, uh, the craft side, as far as actual uh, crafting of product, all those things are very similar. Um, the uh, looking for the, the, the best raw materials, whether it's uh, whether it's grapes or grains or whatever, um, is the same. Where it's very different is when it gets to, and, and by the way, the distribution of it through the same distributors, wine and spirits distributor, is very much the same. So, yeah. sorry? Yeah, very similar, right? Yeah, and I, I think that's where, then you get there and that's where the, the departure starts. Um, I think spirits are much more consumer oriented. In other words, people are more branded when it comes to uh, whether you're talking whiskey or gin or whatever the product is on the spirit side. Um and I think on the wine side, they're, they're less brand oriented. They're more varietal oriented. Uh, if you went into a bar and you were, uh, a Nika whiskey, uh, consumer, if they didn't have Nika whiskey, you might have gin or something else, but you're not probably not going to grab another whiskey. If you drink Chardonnay, you go in and you just take whatever Chardonnay by the glass they have. Uh, if you're buying it by the bottle, they've got five or six or 10 or 12 uh, offerings. You're going to pick one you want, but you've got a portfolio there that you're willing to, to continue to consume. So I think it's just much more branded uh, on the uh, on the spirit side. 
And Dan, with your marketing background, I mean, uh, brand building, uh, it must be a lot of fun on the brand building side for Hodling, right? Because you've got such precious uh, brands with great heritage and history as well, right? Oh, it's, it's unbelievable. In fact, we're blessed with uh, what I believe is, you know, is the finest artisanal portfolio in the U.S. And I and I really believe that. And it's uh, I I can say most of it I, I inherited, so I, I don't take the credit for that. Uh, but, yeah, I think that, uh, you know, for us, uh, we see a great opportunity to uh, to market our artisanal spirits portfolio. And, and then even more specifically, our world whiskey portfolio. We had two things that were, we felt were missing. When I got here in October, which is yeah, a little about 18 months ago, uh, pre-COVID, um, we had a hole in, in Irish whiskey and we had a hole in, uh, in, in scotch. And we were able to get the Walsh whiskey portfolio, which is yeah. primarily Writer's Tears and, and the Irishman, uh, led by uh, Bernard Walsh. And we were able to get the IBHL portfolio, which is owned by Thai Beverage, uh, you might be familiar with. And those great brands, uh, Spayburn, Anak, uh, Ball Blair, uh, great single malt, Old, Oldney. Right? Yeah. 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 And so once, once we, once we filled those holes, we already had Hirsch, our bourbon. We had Nika. We had Cavalon from Taiwan, one of the finest. Um, we had all these great uh, whiskeys from around the world. Once we filled it with those two countries of origin, if you will, um, I think we we fulfilled what we believe is, is the best uh, artisanal whiskey portfolio, world whiskey portfolio in the U.S. And I think our ability to take that and market that, uh, you know, throughout the U.S. is, is going to be probably our strongest card. Phenomenal, yeah. And Dan, about two years ago, this is before you arrived. I had the opportunity to go to San Francisco and uh, have a nice dinner with Tony Folio. Jerry, the mm-hmm. great Jerry Rugo was there. Uh-huh. My former boss uh, from Allied Domestic Spirits and Wine and Smith's Group, Philip Bowman, uh, of course. the chairman of Hodling, was there. Right. And uh, I had Nika whiskey, and it was phenomenal. Uh, Hodling, if I recall correctly, I mean, a, a big emphasis for your business is on the on premise, right? Uh, It kind of fits within uh, the artisanal portfolio and so forth. Certainly, we've all been struggling with the pandemic and the challenges with COVID-19 and the shutdown of bars and restaurants. How have y'all been able to navigate that? And then on top of that, and I'll ask you, I know y'all have been struggling with the tariffs that have been been imposed. Mm -hmm. We did catch a break a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Right. Talk about the on-premise business and, yeah. and how will you be able to rebound in the coming month? You know, one of the things that drew me to Hodling, um, besides the great portfolio, the wonderful people, and of course, Tony and Jerry, who have been you know friends for a long, long time in the industry, um, was the fact that this organization is very product-oriented, extremely product-oriented, extremely product-knowledgeable uh, as well. In fact, I'd put our sales organization and our marketing team up against any of the industry. They are very cocktail oriented. And 40% of our business, 60% of our accounts and 40% of our revenue was from on-premise. This goes back, you know, pre-COVID. COVID hit and April, so it hit in March, April and May of, of uh, 2020, our business was off 30%. Fell off the map. And yeah, Fell off the map. 
And I'd been here for just a cup of coffee, uh, Chris, so I was <laughs> I was quite concerned about it. I thought, well, this will be a short run, but Tony and Jerry and I will still be friends. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what we did was we switched all of our uh, all of our spending, all of our programming, all of our marketing support. We uh, went ahead. You know, this seems it seems uh, pretty smart now, but I was a little concerned about it at the time. Was we went ahead and hired? I knew we needed chain retail people. It was in the budget and in the plan, but that was a pre-COVID plan, which was a plan that we were planning on growing twenty percent. Uh, primarily organically, a little bit with some of the new IBHL or Walsh business. But again, we fell off the, the map 30% in those two months. I was looking at a plan that was going to be 60% of what our plan was. Yeah. 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 So down, down 40% off of our plan. It was what we were modeling here. Went ahead and hired the chain retail people. They helped us immediately. I mean, it's amazing. It helped us culturally, but it also helped us actually uh, in, in the calls that need to be made to the large retail accounts to get some of our other brands going, get more distribution, because we knew the on-premise wasn't going to come back for a while. We took our salespeople who had a very strong cocktail culture and used that product knowledge to get into retail and have those conversations and learn how those conversations with a buyer at retail is just slightly different than when you're talking to a, to a bartender. Um, the good news is a big part of our, our uh, sales organization came from the other side of the bar. So that's sort of where all that culture came from and how they developed that business. And they were able to quickly get up to speed, get more comfortable in presenting to retail and pivot our business. And I'm absolutely proud to say we actually grew last year 10%. Wow. So our turnaround after those first two months of COVID was nothing short of remarkable. And I give all that credit to the organization. I can tell you that they pulled together and they made it happen. And it was really astonishing. You really had to turn on a dime. I mean, that's a, you know, uh, you could write books about that from a corporate leadership perspective because you almost had to reinvent yourself. We in did. A month or so. And you've got great past bartenders that are on your team that knew the product, right? But they'd have to just readjust a little bit to yeah. talk to different different retail accounts in a different way, even change your point of sale material, I, I would. Well, imagine. absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we learned was that uh, we have three or four brands that made that move immediately. So they've got strong consumer backing, Nika being one of them, Hein yeah. Cognac being another one, Luxardo, specifically Luxardo cherries, right? Because everybody started making their martinis so, at home, right? And their, their Manhattans and everything else. Yeah. Right. So what we also learned, though, is that people don't really know how to make cocktails. Uh, now they, they figured out during COVID how to make the classics and, and we'll talk about this hopefully later, what we think is going to be a twist on that when we get back to the bar scene. But, um, we were able to, to take those products that already had some, either, either some, uh, representation in, in retail or we had retailers that knew those products and uh, we were able to get distribution. We lost. I'm going to try to remember the, the numbers here. We lost 24 or 25,000 uh, on-premise accounts last year, which is, you think of the work. Think of the work that everybody at this organization did to build those accounts, right? Yeah. We lost 24 or 25,000. We got back, I think we ended up with a net loss. We ended up with a net loss of, of 11,000 accounts. 
So we picked up a big chunk at retail, right? And these aren't points of distribution, these are accounts, okay? So there yeah. might be several points of distribution. We were still down 11,000 total accounts, but grew 10%. That's the power of retail when you're selling by the bottle versus by the cocktail, right? So, I mean, honestly, the team did an amazing job. And what they learned was the product knowledge is still extremely important when you're selling artisanal spirits. Yeah. What's, what's important is then just to be able to get the nuances of the language right and, and, and who, who you're competing with and you're looking at on a shelf versus on a back bar and whatnot. So they, they did a phenomenal job. And I can't say enough about what the organization did. And, and one thing I was going to say, which is sort of the, the, uh, the non-sexy part of all of this, is we're 60 days into this and I'm thinking, what's the motivation for the organization? Because uh, there's no way anybody's going to make a plan. Right? Yeah. And we all know that uh, it, throughout the industry, you know, sales and marketing and, well, our entire organization has bonuses tied to us achieving certain things. You have your KPIs, which some of them are qualitative, some of them are quantitative. Um, so what we did was we, we wrote down one number. Do the KPIs you're supposed to be doing, continue to do the training and the other things you're supposed to do. We have one number. And everybody this, rallied to it, right? Everybody rallied to this number. And it was a revenue number. And you deliver this revenue number, we're going to pay everybody 100%, no questions asked. If you beat it, we'll pay more. And we paid more. Wow. And, and it was amazing. And we went to weekly, and we're still doing them this, to this day, uh, every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific time. We have an all-company call. Last 30 minutes, not supposed to be longer than that. And those 30 minutes, sales gets on and talks and then we'd have different people from around the country would represent sales talk about something they were doing we'd have marketing same thing operations and finance and myself and we get done in 30 minutes we'd always start the thing with where are we this month on what it yeah. is we got to deliver and everybody rallied around it and i think that had a lot to do with that and of course the quality products we have we're blessed with them that always makes the difference right? it, it absolutely does i mean we've got Again, we're blessed by this, and I take zero credit for this. It's a great portfolio that this organization has built over a long period of time of quality products and our ability to take them and move them to retail. I, I think what happens now, I mean, I'm really bullish about coming out of COVID because when the on-premise really opens up, our job is to go back and get whatever number of those 24,000 accounts came back into business, get those back. Keep the retail going, and uh, I think we've got an amazing job, uh, amazing business going forward. Dan, have you seen with those twenty four thousand accounts that some of those businesses have not survived? Have you been able to? Yeah, yeah. There's and there's a there's a there's a fairly high what we believe is a fairly high mortality rate there as well. Um, yeah, unfortunately, sad. Um, but yeah, when, when sad. everything's come, everything comes back. Uh, I think we'll be thriving. Right. And people so, are just going to be excited to be out with other people, not with the anxieties that we've all been grappling with over the past year. Get ready for a revolution in entertainment. The Spirits Network, the celebrities and the knowledge will take you on an amazing journey. The only place to watch, click and buy some of the finest spirits in the world. You can enjoy Spirits Network on your TV, phone, or by visiting spiritsnetwork.com to check the weekly updates to our programming and products. 
you've also had to contend with the tariffs on EU spirits as well. Right. We had a big news a couple of weeks ago where the Biden administration announced a four-month suspension. Could you talk about the tariffs, the challenges that's been for hodling, and then you know, just all that's happened to the marketplace over the past year, from cocktails to go to right. delivery. And uh, I, I, I can just tell you, we're really excited that Hodling and you have joined the Discus Board of Directors. But how does all that stuff matter for the bottom line of the business and the survivability of businesses while navigating through a pandemic? Yeah, uh, first off, uh, you know, this is this sounds really self-serving. I don't mean it to be because it's it's absolutely and pandering a little, if you will. But Discus has done an amazing job. One of the best things this company did that I'm most proud of, and it's up there with the way we rallied around retail and who we had to do, was joining Discus. Discus, I can tell you, look you in the eye and say how important it has been to this industry what Discus has been able to achieve um, and and how. You took, I don't want to say the opportunity because it sounds opportunistic. It's a long period of work. There's a, there's, there's a, there's, there's a long uh, track record of work that's been done little by little that, that then the industry, the, the powers that be woke up, the, the legislations around the, the country woke up to, we need to be able to help these on-premise accounts by offering cocktails to go. We need to, uh, to allow other sizes. We need to, to back the RTDs and the canned cocktails and all those things. It's been amazing because it's going to change. I think it's going to change the business forever. Yeah. And, and, and here's what I believe. Two things. One, I'll take a real small one. We mentioned it earlier. When people come back to the bars, I don't think they want their Manhattan as much as they want a twist on a classic. Yeah, I think they want they want the mixologists and the bartenders. They'll be heroes again, and they're going to be looking for them to do some uh, to, spice to do it up some, a little bit. Right? Spice it up a little bit because I learned how to make a Manhattan at home, but now I want to know the next best thing and and learn it there. So I think that'll that'll happen. When you turn to canned cocktails and cocktails to go and all that that are available now on premise, I think is extremely important. But even more important. I think is the blurring of what's happening between wine, beer, and spirits. And when you go into now uh, a large account, whether you're in Binnie's in Chicago or you're out here in, in uh, Safeway, um, you've got a whole section there and there's canned cocktails. There's, there's, uh, there's the, uh, what you call it, the seltzers, the hard seltzers. And, and, but here's where I think is the real kicker for us in spirits. That's going to be a, First off, consumers already appreciate and want spirits. What they wanted is to be able to get them and take them to places that in the past weren't, I don't want to say weren't appropriate. They just, they, they weren't portable, right? Sure. Wasn't accessible, really. No, it wasn't yep. accessible. Now, uh, you, when we can go back to a San Francisco Giants game down the street here, and I can't wait for that, you're going to be able to buy uh, a, a canned cocktail in there, just like you can buy a can of beer. And by the way, they're lower ABV for the most part, and they're portable, and and they're safe. I, I, it's to me, it's taking now. It's gonna it's gonna increase the consumption opportunities for people that prefer spirits or want to want to try spirits uh, in in a great way. And I that will never that will not uh, change. That will only get greater in, in the future. And I think it's a it's a fantastic thing for us as an At, industry. 
Absolutely, Dan. And for, for everyone listening, uh, we had a board meeting a couple of weeks ago when way back in the year 2000, with the support of the board of directors at the time, Discus really embarked on a whole campaign and platform to normalize distilled spirits, help bring distilled spirits and our great products up uh, to the same recognition as beer and wine at the time. And over that 20 year period, Discus certainly has played a role in that, but so have our great companies, great marketers, the consumers have gravitated to it, but distilled spirits have gained 10.4% of market share uh, against our friends in beer. And that just uh, demonstrates that consumers are really gravitating to great cocktails and great distilled spirits. The tariffs, uh, was the tariff something that was weighing heavy on you in addition to uh, just switching over, navigating to off-premise versus on-premise and concerns about the cocktail uh, culture uh, having to be lived through a Facebook, uh, you know, (laughs) happy hour? Right. Yeah, I mean, how many more balls could we juggle this last year as an industry, right? And you know, the tariffs were, were crushing. I mean, they, they were brutal. I won't even deal with, with the export side of it because we don't export a lot. Sure. But on the importation side, products coming from the UK, our Luxardo cherries and Luxardo spirits, which little known fact, they were subject to the tariffs. I mean, I know. Yeah. I mean, Luxardo cherries is like, you know, an innocent bystander and it got hit with tariffs, right? (laughs) You know, and, and, and that, uh, you know, that pushed the the prices up 20% at retail. Um, The good news is for for speaking specifically in house here, it didn't hurt our business uh, as much. It slowed down the Irish. I think it slowed down the Scottish. The industry itself got hurt though, got hurt dramatically here in the U S and, and it's, you know, and it's one of those things I understand that these are all puts and takes and trades and, and, and the negotiations and all the things with Airbus and everything happening. But you sort of feel like, you know, you're sitting on the sidelines, minding your own business, doing your own business, doing your own work. And you get hit with these things. And left I think, hook. Uh, yeah, yeah, left hook. I don't know if and I don't want to I'm going to leave this apolitical. I don't know that it had anything to do with administrative changes, but I do think. I do think that it's given um, a new administration an opportunity to renegotiate with new people at the table. And I think when when you're a, a stalemate, that, that can always ha- uh, help. No doubt about it. And through it all, you know, Discus has led the charge here, which is fantastic. I mean, honestly, I can't see how any of this stuff can happen if we didn't have a, a, a strong uh, industry group like Discus. Thank you, Dan. And, and certainly... I'm lucky to have a great, uh, great team, and we've got a great board of directors that provides us the support and guidance. Uh, we still have a lot of work to do on the tariffs. We still are grappling with the 25% tariff on American whiskey. Right. Those exports have been devastated, but uh, I have great optimism, uh, thanks to the Biden administration, their approach, and the dialogue that they're having to hopefully resolve the bone Airbus case and the steel and aluminum case in the coming months. And maybe we can get past these tariffs. And by that time, we're all getting back into the bars and restaurants and having our favorite cocktails as well. 
Yeah, and hopefully we can make it permanent, like you say. And if we can make, you know, you know, get them rolled back permanently, I think it's going to be a boon for consumers that enjoy those products. I think it also gives us as producers uh, the opportunity to do additional marketing. What I mean by that is uh, education, so people understand the products, are more aware of them, can find them. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things which we haven't talked about, I hope we will, is direct to consumer because that's going to change things forever. And I think there's opportunities there for us as an industry. Yeah, Dan, tell us a little about your perspective on e-commerce in general. There's a lot right. of great e-commerce platforms that have really skyrocketed over the past year, whether it's Minibar, Reserve Bar, Drizzly, you can go down the line, Thirsty, great platforms. And then we've got the emerging issue of direct-to-consumer shipping as well. Right. Uh, do you think that's going to change the industry as we know it today? It already yeah. has, I guess, right? Yeah. Well, first off, I don't think distilled spirits should be treated any differently than wine or beer, and we are. So we, we've got to get that fixed. And I know, I know well, yeah, as an industry, we're yeah. very, yes, I know that. But, but really, think about it. Why should we be treated differently, right? Yeah. And I know you know, you know this chapter and verse. Uh, in fact, you wrote the book probably. But, but that's got to that's change because from a, from a purely uh, um, economic and, and personal perspective for consumers, we, we shouldn't be treated differently. Yeah. So we should get that fixed. That's one of the things. The second part of that is we use the platforms. We've signed up on all of them. It helped us tremendously this last year, uh, selling through, through the aforementioned, whether it's Reserve Bar, Grizzly, whatever, um, and made our products available to consumers. Consumers were already there. They're already on the brink of buying. Watch the online sales that have happened through clothing, everything. Right. Everything has been going that way. All that happened was it got it, it got ratcheted up during COVID oh. tremendously. And people decided they could go and find uh, spirits on online and buy them. I, I think so. All those platforms are great. I think they uh, they serve a great purpose to us. I also believe that it gives craft spirits a better opportunity to get in front of consumers when it's harder and harder for us quite frankly, through the three-tier system because of all the big uh, suppliers that exist out there. It's hard not to get crowded out a little bit. Um, I will say this, we don't cry small and we don't cry poor uh, as a supplier. I wanted to make sure I didn't make that sound like that because we look at it and say, we feel like we have the portfolio. When a retailer or an on-premise account wants to talk about whiskey and the industry and the category and what they want to do, we get a seat at the table no with all the big boys. And the reason we do is because we have a great portfolio and they need those products. So I don't feel like I'm at a disadvantage, but I do think we have some very small, very nice items um, that exist even under some of our, our bigger brands that now will have a greater access, uh, consumers will find a greater access to by being able to buy either off some of these platforms or I hope eventually uh, direct. Absolutely. And kudos to our distributor partners with platforms like LibDib and Oh, Drizzly yeah. And, and now Drizzly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I mean, uh, look, uh, some within the industry recognize the direct to consumer shipping issue can be a delicate issue, uh, particularly with our distributor partners. But we all recognize and uh, respect the important role that the three tier system plays. But we also believe that direct to consumer shipping can help create that consumer convenience and that consumer pull that really establishes those brands 
that can really put them in a, in a position to really thrive within the three-tier system as well. And just like wine, wine direct shipping can coexist with the three-tier system. And we believe distilled spirits can as well and will complement it. Uh, and we'll be navigating all of that. Awesome. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, look, the three-tier system, our distributor partners, we, we, couldn't, we couldn't do our business without it. I mean, we couldn't. And so they serve, they serve a, great, a great service for all of us. And so I'm, I'm a big supporter of that. My, my, where I differ just a little bit is that I don't want, in the eyes of the consumer, our products treated differently than other consumer products. Period. Period. Yeah. And so whatever that means and however that plays out, um, that's that's that would be my goal as an industry. And and by the way, all of us, including distributors, should agree with that, that Absolutely. we don't want our products picked on that way because they get treated as if they uh, they are something that consumers shouldn't have access to. And, and that's wrong. And Dan, on top of that, if you look back in the history, the discrimination was really more or less a competitive play by right. other sectors within the industry, right? right. And I think uh, being on the front foot, kind of uh, pushing forward on that with the great member companies that we have with great portfolios that are driving that consumer interest. And in return, hopefully Discus can help uh, pave the way for greater consumer convenience. Uh, really exciting things to come. Uh, okay, so Dan, a couple of questions. We always end this podcast. Uh, uh, doing something fun. We've all okay. been pinned in, quarantining, the vaccine's coming out. You could be anywhere in the world and have a Nico whiskey or whatever, uh, great gin or single malt scotch. You right. want. Where would you be and what, what, what great totaling and company uh, brand would you select at this very moment? Well, that, that's a hard question, but it's actually pretty easy because what you don't know, Chris, is that uh, my wife, being from the East Coast originally, uh, being from a big family as I was, um, she's got two sisters that uh, landed on Nantucket, and they live there year-round. Uh, we go there every summer. Didn't go last summer. So rather than the week, we're there two weeks this summer. I just booked the tickets literally last night at 11 o'clock. I booked the tickets. And so we go out there and my whole gang goes. So my three kids, there's significant others, my three grandkids, we all go out and we rent a big place for a couple of weeks out there. And I can tell you what I can almost taste right now. And by the way, my favorite place in the world is Northern Italy from, I'd say in Central Italy. So Tuscany, all the way up through Verona uh, and, up, um, and up in Luxardo uh, uh, territory. But... Or I can go this year, any place in the world, Nantucket, two weeks. I'm going to sit on the beach. I'm going to drink junipero gin and tonic with a slice of lemon and lime, not just Check lime. that out. I That's love it. that. I love that. The honeysuckle and uh, you know what I'm talking about, Nantucket. It's just, oh, yeah. It's unbelievable. It, you yeah. just, uh, it's everywhere and it's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so, well, uh, look, Dan, yeah, let's hope. Fingers crossed you'll be there sometime in July and August uh, with your family. I'm getting there July 30th. Let's just be specific through the middle of August and it's <laughs> happening. The tickets are bought. You got it. It's going to happen. And yeah. uh, we hope you have a great time with your family. And on behalf of the Distilled Spirits Council, uh, uh, cheers to Hodling, all of your great team. I'm hoping 
that I can get out to San Francisco soon. I promise I won't invade your casa up in Nantucket uh, the first <laughs> week of August. Come on but out. <laughs> I really look forward to uh, working with you and welcome to Discus in the Discus board. And we look forward to uh, really supporting Hodling's uh, great prospect and growth to the future. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your great leadership and really appreciate it. And very, very excited to be part of Discus and also excited about what lies ahead for our industry because I think it's not just the year. We're going to go on a roll here for a while. It's going to be fantastic. No Thanks doubt. for having me. Okay. Cheers. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. Bye-bye. Okay. Cheers. The Spirited Advocate Podcast was brought to you by the Distilled Spirits Council of the United States. If you'd like to be a guest speaker on the show or send us topic suggestions to cover, please contact us at podcast at distilledspirits.org. And please like and share these episodes. Your support is very appreciated.